0: I've been in hospital three separate times. One was the big three-week stay in the coma. Number two was the nerve damage diagnosis. Number three was a surprise attack out of nowhere and I couldn't breathe properly. You know, perfectly healthy 17-year-old, no underlying conditions. It's crazy.
1: Behind every case, there's a story. Protect yourself and each other. Be antiviral. Hear more at antiviralireland.com Supported by the Government of Ireland. everybody I'm Chloe Madeley, and welcome back to the podcast series three for those of you that don't know this is the podcast where I speak to professional athletes coaches physique competitors and all experts in the field of health and fitness I'm really excited that you guys are joining me so without further ado here we go Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast series three. Today on the podcast is one of the OGs in the evidence based bodybuilding, powerlifting, and coaching communities. He is the co founder and chief science officer of Team 3D Muscle Journey, also known as Team 3DMJ. He is the co-founder and contributor to monthly applications in strength sport research review, also known as MASS, and something that I encourage all of my clients and listeners to subscribe to. He is a strength and conditioning research fellow in the Sports Performance Research Institute New Zealand at Auckland University of Technology. He has a PhD in strength and conditioning and two master's degrees, one in exercise science and the other in sports nutrition. He is one of the best and most coveted coaches in the world—a pro-qualified natural bodybuilder and a powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman competitor. It is an honor to have you here, Dr. Eric Helms.
0: Man, I uh, can we just read the bio like five times? Will people listen to that? I enjoyed it. I don't know about you guys,
1: dude. When I was writing it, I was like, I really feel like I should just cut this down. And then I was like, no, no, I'm going to read out every achievement. And you know what? I actually (laughs) did cut out a fair few of them at the same time. But I'm so happy to have you here because uh, everybody listening, uh, guys, you're going to learn a lot from Dr. Eric today. And I'm going to start easy. I'm going to ease everybody in and then maybe get a little bit more technical as we go. Because this is a master, and I and there's no other way that we're going to end doing this. So first and foremost, do you want to just introduce yourself to my audience and tell them a little bit about how you got involved in bodybuilding and powerlifting in the first place, and kind of where it has landed you today?
0: Absolutely. So first, I think you did a a very generous job introducing me. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, it is an honor to be here. So yeah, I just let's see. It was it was around 2004. So. I now have a 17-year-old of of lifting uh, in in my experience. Yeah, I I was going through a relatively rough patch in my life. I was at the tail end of my Air Force career uh, where I was uh, basically an analyst, not a very exciting job, uh, and I just fell in love with lifting. And I tend to have a relatively obsessive personality. So when I do something, it kind of becomes my all-encompassing focus, which is why I have why I became a personal trainer, why I became a competitor, and why I started studying it. And then, you know, here we are, and I have very few life skills outside of things related (laughs) to lifting weights, uh, which are arguably not even uh, life skills. So yeah, I get to go on podcasts, but you know, I can't ride a bike, can't drive stick. Uh, You know, I can use a microwave and not much else. So no, but in all seriousness, I think I've found a lot of meaning in my life from lifting weights. And I really enjoy you know, helping others try to achieve their goals. And I uh, really uh, feel that uh, competitive physique and strength sport have given a lot to me. Uh, so I try to give back. Uh, that's kind of uh, my my arc of my career now is, is finding a way to contribute to the community that gave so much to me.
1: So your name is internationally known and respected as one of the leaders in the field of both strength and physique knowledge and coaching competing when you started i'm pretty sure that you were one of the only guys out there coming in with an evidence based approach i wanted to ask you how do you remember the landscape of coaching and competing back then
0: so there there were definitely progenitors to me you know if we want to if i'm an og then then there are some 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 double o and triple o g's out there at the time this was right around when uh, lane norton was getting pretty popular on the the bodybuilding.com forums. He hadn't finished his PhD yet. Uh, he hadn't even got his pro card yet, as I recall correctly, but he was straight flexed as a moderator on the bodybuilding.com forums. He was uh, doing his PhD. Um, he did the Inside the Life series uh, shortly after that and started coaching not too long after that. Uh, but prior to him, there was Dr. Joe uh who uh, actually was uh, Lane's coach when he got his pro card. And uh, you know if you talk to Lane, he'll attribute a lot of his knowledge and success to Dr. Joe. And I also went to some of his uh, seminars way back in the day. Uh, and he was probably the first natural bodybuilding online coach. And fortunately, he was also the first who used an evidence-based approach. He's probably the first who was using uh, tracking macros rather than giving just a specific meal plan to people. Uh, and using more of a template kind of approach where you remove different types of foods as you get closer and closer to competition. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of where I saw my career arc, but just to give you an idea of how not crowded the room was at that time, uh, when myself and Alberto, Brad, uh, and Jeff sat down to create 3D Muscle Journey, and we were trying to figure out what the hell do we charge people for online you know, coaching? Uh, we had two places to look. How much is Lane charging and how much is Dr. Joe charging? <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. So anyone who is aware of what goes on now in 2021 is aware that there's a fair few more uh, in, oh, yeah. in, in this space. So, yeah.
1: Well, this is exactly my next question, which you just led me to beautifully. I was gonna ask you, how do you think the landscape is now re-online coaching, competing, cowboys and bro science? Do you think it is markedly improved or do you think that there's still a long way to go? <sighs>
0: That's an interesting question. Uh, One I thought a lot about. I think it's difficult when you're someone who's trying to make progress occur. It's it's, it's difficult to stop, smell the roses and acknowledge the progress that's been made because it almost kind of takes the wind out of your sails sometimes. So to be fair and, and to really acknowledge what is here. Science is in again. It's not just necessarily what is the biggest or strongest or what's the current Mr. Olympia doing. And I'm just going to copy that. You know, not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but we've, we've often seen that, that that only gets you so far. Obviously, there's hundreds of thousands of people doing something that, you know, these Instagram fitspiration people are doing who have a million followers, but there's only one of them who looks like that. Um, so it's probably not the methods, but rather the person. And you know the saying, success leaves clues. I think the clue that is left is that what they're doing is not preventing their success, but we can't say that it's necessarily causing it. So I think we've definitely it, we've moved beyond kind of the traditionalism and uh, anecdotal based kind of approach to, to bodybuilding, and, and a lot of things uh, is more generally popular. And now we have new problems. So I will often make a distinction between, you know, being like hashtag evidence-based or hashtag science, <laughs> um, where it's, it, it basically becomes a new marketing strategy. So, the nature of the problem has changed. Now, don't get me wrong, there are still tons of anti-science people out there, people who are skeptical, ignorant. We see this in, in not just the bodybuilding community, but, you know, especially in these current times, there's anti-vaxxers. There are people who are generally, you know, anti-science, not even just ignorant. And that's never going to change. It's not going to go away. However, there are far more people who are interested in being an evidence-based practitioner in the space uh, of bodybuilding, powerlifting, and uh, personal training in general. And I think that's a great thing. But at the same time, I think the philosophical underpinning of what it means to be science-based or evidence-based is is kind of what's lacking now. Because at the time, because there was so much cowboys and bro science, as as you put it uh, previously, (laughs) A lot of the, the folks who were more quote-unquote evidence-based at the time that I was coming up, we're talking late 90s, early 2000s, mid-2000s, even into around 2010 and on, uh, it was essentially uh, myth-busting whack-a-mole was, was what you were doing. Uh, you became the anti-guru. You know, you, you, people say the wrong thing, you point out why it's wrong, you throw citations up, and it's this constant barrage of, of myth-busting. And honestly, at the time, very little telling people what to do. Um, mostly just telling them what not to do, and kind of creating this a uh, counterculture to doing it the way people are normally doing it with your typical pro split and using supplements like uh, you know glutamine or, or things that 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 we are relatively established are probably not based in science or, or optimal today. So that is, I, I think it made sense at the time. I think now we need to be moving into a space where we're telling people what to do and how to do it. But more so than that, I think the current problem is that we're not teaching people to think because if I am a relatively charismatic, evidence-based person, but I simply tell you, hey, here's study and here's outcome, therefore do this, that can sound just as convincing as me cherry-picking another study and telling you to do something that probably on balance is not ideal. So a lot of what I've tried to do in probably the latter half of my career arc is to try to give people tools on differentiating between ways of thinking uh, to, to show them, you know, like, okay, you can still be a guru and be science-based. Uh, if, you're, if you're ego-driven, if you never change your mind, if you attack others, if you use absolute statements, if you're mostly marketing and not a whole lot of nuance, I try to show people like the, the language of science and the way we approach things that is actually evidence-based is, all, is not about finding truth. That's not what science does. It's about tearing down falsehood. You know, which kind of goes back to that whack-a-mole thing, but, but it's basically like, you know, the whole basis of, of null hypothesis testing and, and uh, setting a hypothesis and seeing if it was disconfirmed or not is different than going, here's how it works and I've proven it to be the truth. You know, the theory that remains standing is the one that hasn't been disproven, not what is necessarily the truth. So anyway, that's a long little philosophical diatribe, but we're always getting kind of closer and closer and closer to what we think is best practice. And people struggle with that because they, you know, what you hear in the, the like the, the news media is, oh, scientists used to think this. Now they changed that. Like, ah, I can never follow it. You know. What's a good diet? What's a bad diet? Uh, I don't know. Science is always changing. Of course it is. If science wasn't always changing, we would <laughs> still think that you know that this that the sun revolved around the earth, uh, or that the earth was flat. Uh, so
1: wait a minute. Hold the phone. You mean the? I know. Earth. I dropped the bomb.
0: <laughs> This is, this is emerging science. Uh, this, this is, this is, uh, it's debated. It's, it's controversial. You know, on one side, you have the last 400 years of science. On the other side, you have a strange Facebook group. So, you know, it's, it's up in the air. We're still trying to figure this one out.
1: Oh, it's my new favorite graffiti handle on everything. The earth is flat. I'm like, where? It only started a couple of years ago. And I'm like, where is this coming from? Like, there's a movement that I don't know of. And it turned out there was a movement that I didn't know
0: of. And you're better for it.
1: Yeah, thank God. Yeah. I love that answer. I love that you are kind of pensive and thoughtful about social media and how um, evidence-based is absolutely being used by opportunistic people to absolutely display Egomaniacal tendencies. I've seen it kind of internationally. Um, and this is why I've always loved and respected 3DMJ and obviously Mass, which I uh, am a subscriber to, is because it's objective and it's informative and not at any point is it ego driven. And it's also nuanced. It considers, you know, scientific evidence versus kind of. Uh, behavior and application and that's what i love about it um i get a lot from it i also love it that you said you know competitors you know aren't necessarily the norm and and i am a big believer in in the phrase which i'm sure you've heard you may have even said it. it they get great results in spite of what they do not because of what they do a lot of them which kind of leads me again nicely onto my next question about bro science of back in the day versus you know real science that we know of now uh an example of where they got it very right even if the explanation was wrong, and where they got it very wrong, and that's just a really, I guess I don't know, entertaining question that I wanted to get an answer from you on.
0: <laughs> no, that's a good question. Most of the time, things that are like broadly accepted in like the bodybuilding community that are wrong aren't wrong to the point where they where they will prevent you from reaching your goals. And I think the the reason why that is is because it kind of goes back to what I said. Like if success leaves clues. You can drive around in second gear all the time. Uh, it's not ideal for your engine. Uh, you won't be going with the best gas mileage. Uh, you won't, you know, get there the fastest, um, but you'll get there, you know? Hmm. And I think uh, a lot of the, the things that have been done, they have a basis kind of in, in some kind of general hypothesis, uh, and then it, it is not counter to, to the goal and other things get them there, you know? So for example, eating 400 grams of protein, um, your body is like, really? Okay, well, I, I mean, I can make other substrates out of this. Like, thank you, liver. But um, I would probably be better off if you gave me some some fat and, and some carbohydrates and maybe ate 200 grams of protein, for example. <laughs> um, but I think, I think you have a, a culture in bodybuilding that is based on a little bit of masochism, a little bit of it, it, like extreme personalities, a lot of obsession, a lot of trying to. That's the thing when you, when you have a little bit of like neuroses and a drive to be perfect, um, you start fixing problems that aren't there. You know, like if you're not making the gains you want, uh, you, you change a whole bunch of stuff, and then one of those variables actually helped you make progress, but the other ten you changed happen at the same time. So maybe maybe let's keep them all. You know, and you find yourself with With a whole lot of things standing that aren't preventing you from progressing, uh, but maybe only one or two of them are key and I think um it is useful to see what does everyone do so progressive overload, eating a high protein diet, um, eating more when they're trying to gain weight, you know, eating less when they're trying to lose weight, uh, probably doing cardio if they're trying to lose weight, things like that you you rarely see people who are training exclusively like powerlifters or exclusively like machines only 20, 20 plus reps. Um, so you can get these kind of broad trends where, especially at a high level, you can expect that, you know, it's it, it has to be at least not completely terrible to be there. Um, so as a sports scientist, which I think is probably a good description of what I am, um, just focused on the pseudo sports, <laughs> the... One of the things that is done in more niche sport areas before there's actually a literature basis is you survey what elite athletes are doing and you see what trends pop up. And those start to form the basis of your hypotheses. And you can go, all right, well, let's actually test this empirically to see if what most high-level athletes are doing is beneficial compared to X, Y, or Z. So a big part of why there's all these kind of traditions is because bodybuilding, powerlifting, these are niche sports. If you were to look at something like most team sports are highly funded sports or sports have been played more popularly. Sports science is typically more embedded, uh, and they have a lot more research behind it. Its level of acceptance is much more cultural within the sport. But at least if you looked in the scientific literature, you'd find a lot. If you look at the bodybuilding literature, it's, it's a relatively small group of people doing that research. And I, I know most of them. You know, that's, that's kind of <laughs> the, the yeah. situation. Uh, and the last point I, I would want to make is that um, I know what people mean when they say bro science. But I don't know if a lot of people realize that when they say bro science, a good chunk of that is just anecdote that was brought from the, the quote-unquote trenches. But another really big chunk is just science that expired. Yes. And, you know, expired isn't even the right term. But more research came out and we found out that that finding didn't apply in all circumstances. Or, or we didn't have the best tool for the job. You know, a great example is we used to give a lot more emphasis to the importance of post-workout protein. And then once we started going, well, hold on, if, if we if we don't, don't test people just for an acute time period, we don't actually bring them in fasted, uh, does this hold up over longitudinal studies? Do we see people gaining more muscle mass? And all of a sudden, the evidence gets a lot weaker. I'm not saying don't eat protein post-workout, but no longer should we be as hyperbolic as we were around like the late 90s. And that was all, like the whole post-workout protein thing, based on like 40 studies plus, you know um it wasn't just based on joe down at gnc you know or anything like that <laughs> so so i think that's something people need to realize is is a lot of the t- it, there's not like this hard line between bro science and science and it also implies almost that anecdote should be just dismissed generally yeah. and i think i think a much better conception is that anecdote is a weak form of evidence but it is evidence nonetheless
1: oh absolutely uh you know subjective study is i mean i, I love everything you just said it, science is somebody looking at something and asking a question and i do like what you said it's not science right. it's developed it's developing the idea it's looking into it more and and that is what it is uh, in a nutshell and i think that's a very accurate and respectable way to look at it <laughs>
0: I thought, personally, if I got it, I'd be fine. Young people and sports people, we think we'd be OK, but the truth is that it can hit any of us hard. Like, I hate not being able to play
1: GA, not go out and socialise with my friends. The sacrifices are the only way, so we really need to help each other along the way. Behind every case, there's a story. Protect yourself and each other. Be antiviral. Hear more at antiviralireland.com Supported by the Government of Ireland. Save more with Lidl. Our Board B approved Irish medium whole chicken was three ninety nine, now just three euro. Or try our Board B approved Irish beef Mints down from three thirty nine to three euro, and get a ten pack of fun sized apples. Were one twenty nine, now just forty nine cent. That's better than half price. Lidl, more for you. You touched on kind of a culture in bodybuilding, which I mean, I want to ask you, you've always been a natural athlete in a world where kind of anabolic steroids were rife. Do you remember a time when you consciously made kind of an ironclad, no pun intended there, um, decision to be natural and to stay natural? And have you ever been tempted to take the other route?
0: A hundred percent. And I do remember exactly when. Yeah, I was uh, in my early 20s and I was bodybuilding, but not aware of competitive bodybuilding, or at least I wasn't aware of natural competitive bodybuilding. And this was right around like 04, 05. So you could go on bodybuilding.com and order Andro, get prohormones, things like that. Uh, And I did use some of the early prohormones for, we're talking like weeks of periods in 04 and 05. And then I went to my first natural bodybuilding show in 2005, I believe. And it was an eye-opening experience. I just didn't know it was even an option. And then I kind of learned about, like, the federations and how it works and, like, polygraph testing, urinalysis, and, uh, oh, there's natural bodybuilding. It's its own thing, you know? And I wasn't opposed to it. I I tend to be relatively, like, socially libertarian. Like, people can do what they want. I don't, I'm not going to tell people what to do with their bodies or tell them what's right for them. I'm not going to assume their intentions, their beliefs, or anything like that. So... I, I didn't have any moral qualms against it. Uh, I wasn't comfortable breaking the law. So I was always wondering like, okay, well, if I do want to go the bodybuilding route I'm aware of, there's a certain point where anything buying on bodybuilding.com is probably not the way you're going to go, you know? <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and I, I was trying to wrestle with that. Like, do I wanna, do I want to do that, you know? Um and I knew I mentioned my personality, you know, how I've become a you know relatively obsessive. I just from from seeing everyone talking about it uh and talking to others and, and meeting some very high-level bodybuilders who are very open about their uh, anabolic use, um, they basically are like, you know, they're, they're, you get to a certain point, where your genetics can carry you very far, and there are some people who compete at like the NPC national level who are drug free. There's some really impressive uh middle and below in the men's category, I will say. Um and, uh, but then at a certain point, if you want to go further, you got to do what you got to do. And I was like, I don't really want to make that decision. I thought about my personality and I was like, well, first off, I don't look like I'm, you know, God's gift to mesomorphy. So I didn't think my genetics would get me that far. So if I'm training as, as well as I can, and if my nutrition is on point as it can be, there's nothing left for me to do. What's to stop me from upping the dose and, and just taking that a step further each time. Yeah. To me, it was more about, I didn't necessarily want to get to some size. I, I wasn't unhappy with my body prior to bodybuilding, which I'm, I feel very fortunate because I know a lot of people sometimes are in that place when they find the sport, which leads to a very challenging relationship with the sport. Let's put it that way. So I was happy being some skinny tall kid, but I really liked the idea of building a physique, becoming like a sculptor of my own body and seeing how far I could push it. And then the process of competing and, and seeing how far I can take it. And it was more, I mean, it was not too much different than any other pursuit, like seeing what's, how good of a chef can I become? You yeah. know? So if I had an avenue to compete naturally and not have to deal with that potential question and not have to risk, you know, legal health, uh, or, or moral questions, uh, put my family in uncomfortable positions, things like that. And I had an avenue of competition, um, then I was happy with it. So, uh, once I became aware of that, uh, that was when I decided to be natural. So that was right around like 05. I decided, okay, cool, that's the path for me. I have uh, I have a line in the sand for, to, to kind of manage my personality.
1: I think given your personality, which in case anyone couldn't tell from the introduction, <laughs> yeah, you probably made the best decision for you. Um, okay, so I'm going to jump into my first kind of question now that I think my audience are going to want me to, to ask you. I do have a a fair few bodybuilders listening, but I'll be honest, predominantly my audience are just really keen lifters who want to know more about how to program and progress their own training. So again, like I say, I want to start small and build on it. This might be a way too broad spectrum question for you, uh, Eric, but I'm going to give it to anyone and see what you do with it. Um, When you get a a newbie fresh out of the gate who comes to you with a bodybuilding competition in their sights... Mm. How do you start when it comes to uh, programming their initial training in terms of splits and also also volume? Do you have kind of like a foundation on which you then build?
0: Great question, and definitely not too broad. The distinction I'd make would be that there's a difference between a novice lifter, someone who's like, hey, I wanna start lifting weights, and then someone who is a novice recreational bodybuilder. Some people do immediately get into lifting weights for the purpose of improving their body composition. But a lot of people have done something in the weight room uh, and then want to pursue bodybuilding. In the latter case, I'm very interested in what have they done previously and what type of progress did they get? Uh, what was their initial weight and what did they get to? Uh, what things have they done? Because, you know, kind of going back to you know, anecdotes, where anecdotes are really useful is on the individual basis. Uh, because you are not a mean, you're, 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 you're a data point Uh, And we see very divergent individual effects. So the most useful piece of information I have for an individual with a training history is their training history rather than the peer-reviewed literature. So I want to see what have they done previously, what kind of success they did or didn't have, uh, what volume levels were they at, uh, what prior injuries did they have. And also their individual circumstances. How many days a week can they train? Are they a parent? Are they a full-time worker? Do they have a desk job? Or are they a manual laborer? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's going to be the primary pieces that inform uh, the approach I take. Mm. If someone is a blank slate and is, uh, has, has a relatively available schedule, uh, nothing too outside of the bell curve and all those categories I discussed, and they are a novice lifter, that's when the research becomes quite useful because then I can treat them like they are the mean. They almost certainly aren't the mean, uh, but the the data we have in the peer-reviewed research, uh, it gives us the the largest chance from a probability perspective of being a good enough fit. You know, Most of the time when you see a study and it gives you a mean, which is just the average, then it gives you a plus or minus value. That value is one standard deviation from the mean. Uh, And anytime you collect a whole bunch of data on people or anything, uh, if it is randomly sampled and it is normally distributed and you get a large enough sample, you'll get this kind of bell curve of people who fall in in the certain middle characteristics or middle responses. And one standard deviation covers about two-thirds of the responses, roughly. So if I give someone, let's say, 8 to 12 sets per muscle group to start, uh, and training each muscle group roughly, you know, twice per week. They give them the stock standard upper-lower split uh, with between, you know, four to six sets per muscle group per day. That's probably going to be effective for most people uh, rather than me just kind of pulling something out of the hat. Uh, and it'll probably be more effective than different approaches on average. Uh, but from there, then I get to build the training history and I look back on what they did. And I can find that if they respond better to more volume or less. Uh, if there are certain movements that they they respond to, but also give them janky hips, yeah. tendonitis, what have you, I think that's that's kind of that, that's you know a relatively broad question, but hopefully I've narrowed it enough to give you somewhere to go with.
1: No, no, you you absolutely did, and you know I won't ask you that that. I mean, a sticky bog of what if it was a really experienced lifter because that's a whole other thing in and of itself. Let's just move on to the next question that I had that I'm interested to hear your thoughts on. How do you advise lifters specifically with online coaching? Because I know that this mm. is something that I've struggled with in the past to test their technical and or absolute failure um, in order to determine percentages of their one rep maps, reps in reserve, rate of perceived exertion, how do you determine that with a client, especially a client online, when I know that if they're new to lifting, it's almost in- inevitable that it's going to be a stab in the dark and probably an inaccurate stab in the dark? Mm.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So just, just so people are all on the same page, uh, you know, like repetitions and reserve is just basically how many reps you got in the tank. Like if you stop that set short of failure, how many more do you think you could do? Uh, And we've repeatedly seen in the research that the less experience you have lifting weights, uh, the more you underestimate your capacity. The good news is, is that when you're a novice, it takes very little to induce progress. You can be six reps short of failure, and that's certainly a lot more stimulus than you ever had because previously you were error. Short of failure, that the the calculator spits out an error because you don't lift weights. You know, it's not it's not a function we can we can determine. Uh, certainly, lifting weights at all is more than lifting your cell phone. So I think uh, a good way to view it is as building a skill. So for hypertrophy training, uh, one of the most important variables is uh, sufficient tension, and tension is achieved by having a certain level of effort. And effort is probably best quantified as proximity to failure. So you can train with sets of six to eight, or you can train with sets of 15 to 20. And on a per set basis, if they are sufficiently close to failure, uh, they're going to have a relatively similar stimulus. That's why we see folks like Ronnie Coleman, and we see folks like Arnold (laughs) Schwarzenegger, who have gotten huge using very different training techniques. Uh, which is also great if you have one of those niggles I talked about before. If it's load dependent or volume dependent, you can choose one or the other uh, to best suit your body. Um, or if you know, you're know you on lockdown and you only have access to certain weights, there may be some movements where you can go heavy. If you've got, let's say, a barbell in a rack, but a lot of your accessory movements, it's bands. You're going to have to go high rep and go close to failure. Yeah. So it, it gives us a lot of flexibility. So while that proximity to failure is very important, Um, we have a relatively broad range of where we can be. You know, a lot of people will say you need to go to failure, but the evidence doesn't bear that out. And even more so, like I said, as a novice, uh, the proximity to failure is not as important, probably, as when you're more experienced and you need to induce uh, a greater stress to keep growing. The good news, though, is that when you look at bodybuilders, powerlifters, and highly trained lifters with, say, four plus years of experience, you're actually quite good at estimating your, your proximity to failure. So setting loads with novices, a lot of the time is just a process of letting them feel it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to test necessarily a, a, a one rep max. You know, I, we, we can derive a one rep max on some of the barbell lifts from, let's say, their heaviest 5RM that they were comfortable doing if they had spotters or not. Uh, knowing that it'll probably be submaximal loads and underestimate load, and they're going to get stronger every time they repeat the movement, and that's fine. Uh, because if they're getting stronger every time they repeat the movement, then we can see that... It's not really important that we're pushing it really hard at this stage. I think a lot of the times we overcomplicate or overthink of how do we set loads for, for new lifters when a lot of the times we seem to be working on technique. And that's the other part of your question. You know, The technical execution side of things, this is where I think being in person gives a definite advantage over working as an online coach. Having been a personal trainer before I became an online coach and knowing just how many online coaches are out there who these days have not been an in-person personal trainer first, you don't really know what you're missing. Mm -hmm. Um, You forget how much you pick up on from uh, in-person casual conversation, uh, from just being able to watch them during their warm-up, how they carry themselves when they walk in the door, how distracted they are. Um, And I think it's really important to realize that online coaching is a good fit for people who Maybe themselves are at the level of experience. as a personal trainer. It's, it's no mistake that probably 50, 60% of our clients at 3D Muscle Journey are themselves coaches or trainers. Uh, they've got a level of technical expertise on average. They have a level of experience with training. And I think that's, that's, that's where the fit is, is best. That's not to say you can't have a novice who, who does online coaching, but we do a lot of things to shore up those weaknesses. So for example, uh, we, I ask my athletes to send like the the uh, video of their heaviest lift on their most technical compound movement on a weekly basis, in their reports if they can, and if it's not uh, a technological impossibility uh, or there's a language barrier to it, I ask them to record themselves talking to their phone for their weekly report. In addition to sending a spreadsheet with some quantitative data, you can see so much in the way someone carries themselves, speaks, uh, gives them a little more opportunity to actually reflect. So. And, and occasional Skype calls, I think that goes a real long way for shoring up the weaknesses of, of, of an email. Those are all elements that, that can be used to specifically give someone a better ability to, to gauge their proximity to failure. I like to give people uh, the encouragement to film their lifts, look at the video, and then rate the proximity to failure. And then even send me video so I can go, well, what did you think? Okay, cool. Here's what I thought. Not everyone fails the same way. Some people are, are quote-unquote grindier. But in general, I, I can tell if someone is really overdoing it or underdoing it. Uh, more often than not, they're underdoing it. Uh, unless they're putting it on Instagram, you know, because then there's that oh, yeah. social pressure. <laughs> and then finally, I think going through periods, blocks, days, some method of actually in a safe environment, having people actually train to failure is a good thing. Because that's why experienced lifters are more accurate. Is because they've pushed themselves to their limits previously. and novice has not. So, yes. Yeah you know have someone do an amrap on a machine chest press or a leg press just to know oh I can actually keep... I was really slowing down but I got two more reps I can actually grind if they've got a spotter and if they've got good technique you can do the same thing on barbell lifts but just be wary at most novices don't have those things so <laughs>
1: yeah but I love that though like the counterthorn that well newbie gains is your kind of insurance (laughs) and advanced lifters will have the learned behavior and I also love what you said I was a kind of in the trenches PT for years before I started doing online coaching and I learned so much more doing that than I ever learned from my qualifications that would allow me to coach now and be insured doing it so 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 much more I personally think we do I do um Video check-ins as well, which are really, really helpful. But there's no denying that. I think if you haven't ever been face-to-face, one-on-one with clients for a handful of years... I don't see how you could be as good of a coach online. But hey, you know, I don't want to be a hater. So I'll stop talking there. Um, (laughs) Okay, so now I'm going to come a bit back to you. I know that you flit yourself between bodybuilding, powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman competitions. How do you split your training throughout the year or years, plural, in order to cater to such different goals, training, and recovery protocols?
0: Great question. Yeah, so I, I think backwards from when I plan to compete. That really helps me kind of divvy up the, the annual plan and break down individual training blocks. So, so, for example, in 2019, I decided that's what I'm going to get back on stage. Uh, I decided that in 2017, however. I was finishing my PhD and I was like, I want to get back on stage, but I need some time to build some muscle. So, I'm going to take 2018 as an off-season, be very focused on bodybuilding. 2019, I'll get on stage. Um, So that gave me the opportunity to have a very bodybuilding-focused style of training with really minimal squat, bench, and deadlift, if I'm honest, uh, during that period. um, Just enough to maintain my skill in those movements. And I think that's the biggest distinction between strength sport of any type uh, and bodybuilding is that strength is a skill. Uh, Obviously, if you give people equal technical expertise in a lift and one person is yoked and the other person is not, uh, you know, the yoked person will be stronger. And probably more relevant is that the yoked version of you will be stronger, hence the the relevance of, of periodization and hypertrophy training for strength athletes. But certainly that technical aspect uh, is, is a large driver of strength, uh, more so than volume. You will see that intensity, as in load on the bar, uh, is, is most predictive of strength gains in longitudinal studies. Yeah. So uh, what that means is when you're a multi-sport strength a wannabe, aka athlete, but more wannabe in my case, uh, that means you can do some things to maintain skill or build skill, especially if you're not that proficient in a new type of movement or lift or, or discipline uh, by manipulating, uh, thinking of it as skill building, which is a different kind of perspective than most bodybuilders have. They think, well, I need, how much volume do I get to, to grow? And, you know, like going up to a single at a five RPE on squats is like, well, why would you do that? Well, a single <laughs> at roughly 85, 86% of one RM Will probably maintain my squat one or M or very have a very slow decay, even if it's just doing it once per week. Yeah. Um, believe it or not, you know. So if you know, I, I go through a powerlifting peaking uh, program and I get up to say a you know a two twenty 220, two twenty five squat, I'll probably be able to hold on to 210, 215, just having one squat top set single before then I jump over jump, jump over on the leg press or yeah. or you know do sets of eight on squats, which I prefer not to do. But um, <laughs> I think. Essentially, you think of what is, the, uh, what is the dose I need to maintain a skill? And then what is the timing? And you kind of shift things around from the back burner to the front burner to being the main focus. And you also get to leverage, quote unquote, muscle memory, you know, as an example. I was, uh, it's 2021 now. Okay, so in 2020, very fortunate here in New Zealand that we have COVID relatively under control yeah. um, and we've been able to live a relatively normal life. Yeah. I was able to compete in two Olympic weightlifting competitions in August and then October. So I had an almost pure Olympic weightlifting focus with some minimal bodybuilding uh, in there. And uh, I was pretty much just getting maybe one bench press session in a month and letting the Olympic lifts maintain my, my squat and my deadlift. So I had been doing Olympic lifting from all the way from, say, April to October. And then with six weeks time, I jumped into a powerlifting meet. And I just jumped right into heavy singles with a high frequency uh, and just let my strength build back up. And within six weeks, I totaled something that would just be an average day for me back when I was at the height of my powerlifting career. Wow. So I think people underestimate what it takes to get back to old ground. Uh, when you're not, I, mean, I wasn't detrained. I just was de-skilled, if you will, in the specific yeah. movements. Because I'm still, you know, training five days a week as an Olympic lifter, et cetera. So, you know, I went from probably being able to bench 120. Uh, to benching 145 in the competition in six weeks, um, I went from high bar squatting maybe 180, 190 at best to squatting 210 low bar in the meet. So those things come back quickly. You know, if if the motor patterns have been there previously, uh, and if their muscle mass is still there, uh, shifting focus can can regain them quickly, and that's something you can leverage to your advantage. Um, so. That is kind of how I plan things. Um, When I have more time than six weeks, obviously, I'd go through a phase of higher volume training, more accessory work, et cetera. Um, But a lot of the times the question is, well, all right, what do I need to maintain whatever aspect of my other sports that I need while I focus on another? So most of the time for me, that looks like sprinkling in of bodybuilding Mm. um, and choosing some accessories that most powerlifters probably wouldn't like. Why is he doing a leg extension? Why don't you do a belt squat or something like that? Because yeah. I'm trying to get my rec fem jacked, bruh. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I think I, I sprinkle in a lot of bodybuilding pretty much at all times. And then the skills that I focus on uh, are the ones in the most forthcoming competition. And then I try to maintain other skills more generally. But like, for example, this year in 2021, I've got like two or three powerlifting competitions I want to do. So my training is really minimal when it comes to anything uh, weightlifting related. I'm not really doing any strongman stuff. And the bodybuilding is uh, kind of second priority. And then pretty much a lot of squat bench and deadlift.
1: Okay, so I love that. You touched on the big three there and not wanting to do sets of eight on squats, Mm. which takes me nicely again to my next answer. I love it. You're very easily segueing me into each question. In terms of bodybuilding specifically, is there a place for the big compound lifts in that training split? And if so, how do you program for those big lifts with fatigue and recovery in mind?
0: Good question. Yeah, so big compound lifts are double-edged swords. There's very few exercises like uh, that that will train 70 to 80 percent of the musculature in your body, like say the squat or the deadlift. But at the same time, when you train 70 to 80 percent of the musculature in your body, it generates a high level of fatigue. Uh, When you get strong on these, and then you decide to do a multi-rep set, you know, Uh, when you can squat two times your body weight, and you decide to do 70 percent of that for three sets of ten, that's going to be challenging, Uh, far more challenging than doing. Uh, you know, leg extensions, but leg extensions don't train your your lumbar, don't train your erectors, they don't train your glutes, they don't train a little bit of hamstrings and calves. So uh, they don't train, you know, core stabilization, etc. So that can be leveraged. There may be times where you would rather do three different exercises than one and get a little bit better muscular stimulus locally for each one, have it take longer, but have the net fatigue maybe not be quite as high. So I think you have to think about the overall dosage. I typically, I don't encourage bodybuilders to try to think like bodybuilders and that they're trying to isolate a muscle group um, because it's far more complex than that. You know, we think of a row as being a back and secondary biceps exercise. It is, but muscle groups are a little more complicated than that. Like shoulder flexion actually has some triceps involvement. One of the heads does that a little bit. Uh, your biceps is actually a weak shoulder flexor. So when you're pressing Believe it or not, there's a little bit of biceps there. The amount of static stabilization, co-activation on compound movements is, is more than people would predict, and and we get things wrong sometimes. Like you know, if you ask the average power lifter in 2000, even today, uh, you know, a low bar squat. What's the primary mover? Probably hamstrings. It's it's still quads. Sorry, yeah. that's not just not the way that works. Um, <laughs> so, I think when we start thinking as this movement trains this muscle. We're probably more right than we are wrong if we're reasonably well informed, but a lot of the times we're missing pieces of the puzzle or the interaction or the overlap. And for that reason, I think it's smart to try to not outsmart the body and include some of these big compound lifts that are quote unquote functional, follow kind of basic synergistic movement patterns like a squat, a hinge, a row, a press. And I do encourage bodybuilders to have some form of them in there. It doesn't need to be the big three. The bar doesn't need to be in your back. It doesn't even need to be a bar. But you probably want to go through deep hip flexion, uh, dorsiflexion, and knee flexion and stand up again under load. Uh, or doing that lying down. That could be like an angled hack squat. Uh, you probably want to pick step off the ground or at least hinge close to that area to really get you know, some gluten hamstring involvement. You probably want to be pressing with the range of motion. You probably want to be pulling. I often tell bodybuilders they probably want to include the big six, quote unquote, which is a horizontal push, horizontal pull, vertical push, vertical pull, a hinge, and a squat pattern. But with very liberal interpretations of what those could be, that could be a leg press, an RDL, uh, you know, a machine chest press, uh, OHP, you know, a row and a pull up. Um, and those are kind of those core staples. You don't need to do a ton of sets with them. Like a you know a power lifter often does like 15 sets a week of squats. You might only do three to six with um, other things being your, your movements to train the quads and the glutes. Um, but they should probably be in there because they produce a, a broad spectrum stimulus, but a lot of fatigue. So it means you have to limit the dose, but you don't want to not have that dose. Because if you try to isolate everything, you're probably missing a few things.
1: What an answer for everybody listening to actually... <laughs> implement that it was fantastic I love that that I've heard you talk many times about intensity and volume being intrinsically linked and you get a little mm-hmm. bit like ratty when people try and separate them and ask you <laughs> questions and I love that because I it just it feels very organic and natural to me too that, that of course they have to just work in tandem and they have to progress in tandem over time as they should when the rate of adaptation has has significantly slowed and and you're really reaching your your genetic healing re um muscle hypertrophy Where does the focus then fall when it comes to a very advanced seasoned lifter breaking through a muscle growth plateau? And I just want to add an add-on to this that I know I've seen Alberto Nunez's pictures of late and i know that you guys did a podcast on this recently that i haven't heard but he's a prime example how does he keep in, in kind of bettering his physique with such a, a kind of mature training age
0: so i think the second question will be an easier one to answer <laughs> he's been he, he's a he jokingly called this bulk uh like jo- bulking to the year 3000 um <laughs> because the last time he competed was four years ago um, and, you know, I think if things go well, if he's two or three pounds heavier on stage, he'll be ecstatic. Yeah. Um, and, you know, on a guy who's, you know, 5'8 and competes at 160, three or four pounds, you notice that. So I think that's just to put it in, a, in a kind of like a relative, a relative sense. Very cool. Most people would be like, oh, four years, you put on four pounds. What are you doing wrong? And I'm like, well, at his stage, he's doing a lot right. A <laughs> lot right, yeah.
1: You know? It's yeah. amazing. It's amazing. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, a lot of- Just patience and and consistent hard work and paying attention and doing more things right than wrong and trying not to get hurt, I think is what he would probably tell you. Yeah. And trying to focus on specific muscle groups, shoring up weaknesses rather than kind of taking a a general, I want to optimize everything approach. Um, Because you do end up not being able, there is a limit to the rate of gains you can make and there is a certain level of stimulus you have to hit to make it happen. So making everything grow effectively all at the same time, that's, that's more of the intermediate game. So, I do get ratty when, it, when people try to separate volume and intensity because we've had these warring camps since early days with the high intensity training versus the volume focus thing and and they almost always devolve into these dichotomous debates that leave everyone a little bit less informed <laughs> and I think the way I've been describing it lately, which i think I think I've hit on something that that is easier to understand for people. Is there's a difference between a, a variable that makes a larger difference in something and then one that is essential. Uh, so, And that's kind of the difference between intensity and volume. So what I mean by that is that intensity, and we'll go back to the definition that's most relevant for hypertrophy, that proximity to failure. Effort, trying hard enough on a set per set basis. Uh, that is the variable that you must have. There is no uh, there's no negotiating on that one. It needs to be sufficiently hard. We can debate what sufficiently hard is, um, <laughs> but if we go to the extremes, we know what is not hard enough. If you were to grab a pencil and do a set of 10, you'd be like, all right, that's good enough. Most people would be like, eh, it's probably not, you know, um, unless you're a mouse. Uh, but <laughs> I don't think you have many mice listening. Um,
1: <laughs> Just the visual those mice- is making me really happy, though. <laughs>
0: Yeah, curling, curling uh, like Ratatouille, getting his uh, getting his twenty ones in with a pencil. I'm so into that. Um, yeah, so I think when people go, "Is what's more important, volume or intensity?" I, I think a better way to frame it is, "Well, intensity is is a must, and then it's the question of how much volume of sufficient intensity do you need?" Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's the way to frame it because uh, we'll use a parallel that, that that doesn't you know get people riled up based on whatever camp they're a part of. Uh, If you started a run today and you wanted to improve your mile time, simply running once per week a mile as fast as you could, you would see rapid improvements. That first time be like a 10-minute mile and you'd almost throw up. Next time be 9:30. Next time be 9. You'd be getting close to 8 minutes and start slowing down. And at a certain point, you would probably plateau, maybe around a 7:45 mile from running once per week. What do you do then? Um, you know, in in bodybuilding, the answer to this in the intensity camps has been forced reps, uh, eccentrics. You, you can't really, yeah, like you know, like the Dorian Yates stuff. If you ever listened yeah. to Blood and Guts, he was like, "So yeah. what do you do if you plateau? You have to find a way to do more intensity. Get your spotted and force you to do more reps. Uh, do a heavy eccentric, pre-exhaust. That can work, but it takes a whole lot of other options off the table." And you might show up to an Olympia with like four torn muscles, um, <laughs> but you'll still win because you're Dorian Yates. Uh, so, <laughs> so I, I think I think w- like if we go back to that running analogy, the only option in that case is maybe I run another day. Oh my god, like that's a great idea. And then all of a sudden you break the plateau, and you know you can keep following that proposition of when when you plateau you add another day of running, and then eventually you start to get overtrained. And then that's what periodization emerges from. Okay, how do we do enough to get continual progress when you're already elite, but then manage fatigue? Uh, The output of that is periodization. And then, of course, we created a whole bunch of rules and principles that are only conditionally important and overcomplicated to talk about that. People wrote books and got egotistical, and now periodization's a mess. But ultimately, (laughs) this kind of bottom-up approach of continuing to progress produces similar conclusions no matter where you are. Uh, whether you're a sports scientist in Russia in the 60s or whether you're an American athlete trying to figure out, you know, how to break a four minute mile, you kind of get to the same place or similar places. Uh, And it becomes a game of how do I manage recovery while I have to put increasing stress stresses uh, onto the system? If We translate that whole kind of running analogy I gave the bodybuilding. uh, Basically, you start with a relatively minimalistic approach as a novice and you just ride it until you plateau. And then, Almost invariably, if, unless you started with a lot of volume in the first place, which a lot of people do if they're exposed to a more volume-centric approach, the next step is to do more. Now, that's not always the case. I've ran into many people at a high level who are plateaued because they're doing too much. Um, so it is dependent upon where you start. But if I had that novice, I would give them, say, eight sets per muscle group per week, which I know will be sufficient for the vast majority of people and sufficient especially for the, the vast majority of novices And then it will end up still being appropriate for some, but it'll probably be too little for most. Mm. Uh, And at that point, once they can't progress anymore on doing a hard eight sets per muscle group per week or around there, I figure out a way based on their schedule, their recovery, their individual characteristics to do more. And then as we keep progressing, I I find a way to to manage that fatigue. And that I notice is kind of a, a pretty consistent phenomenon that when you go from novice to intermediate, you have to find a way to do more. Uh, less consistently, and this kind of connects to Alberto, do I find going from intermediate to advanced is just another uh, step in doing more? Um, and I find that to be the case because it just doesn't become logistically feasible. Uh, you still can't measure progress over the si- same time frame, so you find yourself in these traps of trying to do far too much. And it becomes more about uh, timing, picking your spots, being patient, uh, doing specialization cycles, or emphasizing one variable more than another and you get these kind of emerging theories that we have around, you know, hypertrophy periodization, like oh we're going to go through a high rep phase or uh, a strength phase, et cetera. Uh, to try to push one variable so that. You don't result in kind of the systemic overall fatigue of just trying to do all the volume and all the intensity.
1: Yeah, and and again, talking about periodization and fatigue, and just bringing me to my penultimate question for you, perfectly. How is it that you program deload weeks? Is it instinctive and intuitive, or is it set in stone kind of uh, microcycle that that you periodize for yourself and/or clients?
0: So deloads are basically exactly that. It's it's unloading the person of the of the level of. Strength stress they're at to try to allow that fatigue to dissipate. Uh, Because the beauty of fatigue is that while it mounts with fitness as you train, it dissipates a lot faster. And you take two days off in a row after a hard training block, and most of the time you're okay. But not always, especially (laughs) not when you're doing some of the things we talked about. So what I will often do is I will implement uh, deload weeks based on the responses of the person. If they're a client of mine, this will include those videos and weekly feedback and all that subjective data. Yeah. But I also have some objective markers, which ironically are subjectively rated. But I will use what's called a session RPE. So that's essentially once the session is finished and you're, you cool down a little bit, you give a rating of 1 to 10 of how hard the session was. Mm-hmm. And I will normally estimate what I think the session RPE should be so I can see my assumption of how hard a session will be compared to their experience of it. And I can see if I'm systematically over or under prescribing uh, total training stress relative to their experience. And additionally, at the end of each block, I normally I write like three-week blocks. I find they're a nice little manipulable time period uh, that allows me to be agile. And typically nothing goes to hell or to heaven in a three-week period. Yeah. Uh, At the end of a three-week period, I I have six yes or no questions uh, that are unambiguous, easy to answer, and are, in the the literature, relatively consistent with uh, overreaching or overtraining. So is your sleep uh, better or worse than normal? Are your stress levels better or worse than normal? So these are just yes, no, which is great. Are your aches and pains better or worse than normal? Uh, Is your performance uh, actually decreasing? So your strength levels are estimating going down. I have that objective data, but I like to see their feelings on it as well, which can tell you something. Uh, Are you enjoying training and are you motivated? Are you excited about training? Yes or no. Also highly related to the psychological side of overtraining. Uh, And then another one that off the top of my head, I can't remember right now, Um, but (laughs) I have these six questions that I have uh, yes or no questions, yes or no answers on. And when someone has says yes to two or more, I often decide to give them a deload a week. And I have some other rules of thumb that I've just developed anecdotally over the years as a coach that if we go through three mesocycles and it and it hasn't stressed you out, um, and you are also matching my session RPE, so like I've I've adapted, and I think the individual sessions are hard enough. I'm just going to give you a deload just in case, because yeah, yeah, you know, because because there there's there's little to risk and much to gain if maybe you're just being a little over over aggressive or, or not acknowledging the fatigue or something's creeping up, you know. And that's just me being conservative, but keeping the client's health and safety in mind.
1: No, I love that. I do it every 12 weeks for my clients as well. I think it's really important. Um, okay, right. Well, we've basically been going for a full hour. And this is, you've been my favorite guest unsurprisingly I've ever had on and I cannot thank you enough for coming on. And I I love hearing you talk about your craft. You're so respectful of it. You're so poetic about it. And it has just been such an honour. I just do what I do with all my guests. I just I let you have the floor if you want it for the last Few seconds or few minutes, however long you want, to talk about anything you want to leave my audience with, uh, where to find good information, where to find you, anything you want to promote, any thoughts you have, just speak, and then and then I'll let you go free into Auckland.
0: <laughs> well, thank you very much, Chloe. I'm I'm honored to hear that, and I appreciate those kind words. Um, we've jumped we've jumped over a number of different topics of training, and I think one thing I like to tell people, you know, when we have a relatively nuanced scientific discussion, is like. The complexity can be fun. Uh, it can be interesting. I certainly, obviously, if anyone listens to me talk, enjoy it. Um, but you only want the level of complexity necessary to make progress. Uh, because the more moving parts, the harder it is to make decisions. And ultimately, coaching and coaching yourself, for those who aren't working with someone, is about keeping things as simple as possible and changing one variable at a time so you can actually see what is working and learn yourself better. Sometimes people will listen to me speak they get exposure to a lot of different ideas and scientific concepts and hypotheses and ways of doing things. And it can almost lead, lead them into this, uh, you know, well-intentioned, passionate search for uh, the next rock to turn over and the next best thing. If that search results in what is essentially program hopping, I've actually done you a disservice. So what I am really advising is that instead of doing a whole lot of science things, You take a more scientific approach to training, which as you so astutely pointed out, Chloe, uh, is uh, observing things, identifying a problem or a potential pathway to success, setting up a plan and seeing how it goes and being systematic in that approach, seeing what worked, what didn't, and then changing one or two things for your next block. And that will get you ever so closer to figuring out what really works for you, uh, which becomes increasingly important as you advance your training age. The goal is not to have a a top 10 list of cool sciencey stuff that you've tried in the last six six weeks, uh, because that will lead you (laughs) spinning your wheels uh, and able to say things that most people's eyes cloud over when they hear, but won't get you a lot of gains. Um, So that's that's really my only only last piece of advice. Uh, If anyone's interested in finding more about what I do, uh, you so generously pointed out that I am a part of mass. I am uh, one of the reviewers along with Greg Knuckles, Mike Zerdos, and Eric Trexler. Um, and uh, if you want to find either of those or my books, you can go to 3DMuscleJourney.com. We have links out to that. And I put cool stuff I do, like being on podcasts such as this, on my Instagram, at uh, Helms3DMJ. Uh, and uh, if you like listening to podcasts and me yakking all the time, I'm also on the 3D Muscle Journey podcast semi regularly. And I weekly with Omar Isif do Iron Culture so yeah be an honor if anyone wants to come over and hang out with us yeah and can be silly about lifting
1: yeah everybody everybody follow them all on instagram and if you if you have the means subscribe to mash you will not regret it um and yeah honestly it has been just brilliant thank you so much dr eric helms and yeah have a lovely week
0: <laughs> you as well and have a great night and i appreciate you uh having me on
1: that's it for today's episode thank you guys so much for listening please remember to hit that subscribe button or that follow link so that you can be notified as soon as new episodes are released and don't forget to follow me on instagram at madeleypoey for more health and fitness posts
0: I've been in hospital three separate times. One was the big three-week stay in the coma. Number two was the nerve damage diagnosis. Number three was a surprise attack out of nowhere and I couldn't breathe properly. You know, perfectly healthy 17-year-old, no underlying conditions. It's crazy.
1: Behind every case, there's a story. Protect yourself and each other. Be antiviral. Hear more at antiviralireland.com. Supported by the Government of Ireland.